Father, thank you so much for being a personal God, a God who loves us with, with all of your being, a God who created the entire universe solely for the purpose of creating man and redeeming man so that you can have people in your presence or redeemed people who will glorify you forever and fellowship with you. We will tabernacle with you one day forever in our Father's house. How we look forward to that day, Father, when we leave these earthen clay vessels and have glorified permanent temples in your presence. Thank you for the beauty of your creation. Every year I think of how amazing it is that everything resurrects up out of the ground. Again, a picture of your son's resurrection and our one-day resurrection, how the daffodils are up and the trees are beginning to bud, and it just reminds us of the resurrection season, which we celebrate every day of the year. Thank you for your word, without which we would not know you. Thank you that we don't have to flounder around in this world not knowing who you are and how to get to you, but you have written a book to tell us all these truths. And we cannot thank you enough for the Lord Jesus who was willing to condescend to come to this earth to, to offer his blood, his perfect sinless blood on our behalf so that we, he is our great high priest and our sacrifice so that we can again spend eternity with you. And I pray, Father, if there is one here who has not yet personally accepted you, received you into her heart and has been born again, that she would take care of that most serious decision in her entire eternal life, that she would do that today even, because today is the day of salvation. Now I pray that you would um, be with us in this lesson, that you would be glorified in everything that is said and everything that is thought here this morning, for we pray in the blessed name of our Savior, amen. Well, this far in our study of Stephen's fantastic, marvelous, wonderful sermon, which I never knew before was so deep. But this far into the sermon, we can really almost feel the tension growing in the Sanhedrin members as his defense, Stephen's defense of the accusations against him, has turned around and actually become an indictment of Israel's long history of rejections, rejecting every deliverer, God-sent deliverer that was ever given to her, and every God-sent prophet, and also her long history of idolatry, idolatrous apostasies. And so they're beginning to feel the tension. It's getting to the point where it's really, the atmosphere in that room is just like electricity. Now, in our last lesson, we had discussed Stephen's words about how quickly and it was just so amazing how quickly the Israelites in the wilderness had thrust from them. He said this in verse 39 of Acts 7. The very man who had come and delivered them out of Egypt. That was Moses, of course. As soon as he was out of sight up there on Mount Sinai, he was out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. And they, they just, their hearts turned back. Can you believe that? Their hearts, you know, I can believe it because of us today. I know the human heart. But their hearts so quickly turned back to Egypt and to the gods of, of Egypt, the false gods. Now remember, it was the Israelites themselves, the Hebrews there in Egypt, who were the ones who had sighed and cried out to the Lord to deliver them, to save them from their afflictions in Egypt. And think too, they had been firsthand witnesses of the complete powerlessness of the Egyptian gods to do anything to combat the ten plagues that the Lord wrought upon Pharaoh and Egypt um, through the hand of Moses. They had witnessed those ten plagues, and they were amazing plagues, weren't they? Turning the Nile into blood and frogs and whatever there was, boils and lice and all that kind of stuff, and a lot of it, and there was darkness on the, upon just the Egyptians and not on the Israelites. They had witnessed all those fantastic miracles. And they, too, then, um, had also been the firsthand witnesses of that phenomenal miracle of the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the entire Egyptian army by the mighty power of the hand of the Lord using Moses. And yet, they'd seen all those things, and yet, in just a matter of months, in the blink of an eye, they insulted God in the worst way imaginable by getting Aaron, and shame on him, right? 
getting Aaron to make a golden calf, which was one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, was a calf, a bovine. They replaced their worship of Jehovah with the worship of an Egyptian idol and gave it, they gave the calf, the golden calf, the praise for having delivered them out of Egypt. I couldn't think of a better word than stupid. I know, I'm not allowed to say that in front of my grandchildren, but that's just plain stupid. I have never understood my entire life how people can worship an idol. I just cannot understand that. I mean, they know it was made by human hands. How can they worship it? Even when I, the church I grew up in had statues and it had icons all over the place, and I was supposed to go up to the icon and kiss it and do my little genuflect thing and all that, and I never did. I wasn't saved, but innately I knew that that was just wrong. It was stupid, and so I never would kiss those pictures. I mean, it'd be like walking up to one of these stained glass windows and kissing it. Does that make you a better Christian? I have never understood that, but that's what they're doing. They're giving credit to the golden calf that they just made out of their gold earrings and um, giving it credit for delivering them. They were breaking the first two commandments of the law at the very time God on Mount Sinai was writing the commandments with his finger on tablets of stone. And they're breaking the first two, which was, Thou shalt put no other God before me, the true God, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. And then the rest of her history continued to be one of idolatry. She had a real issue with idolatry. So finally he had to take the northern kingdom off into captivity to Assyria, with the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom to Babylon. Now even though the first century Jews to whom Stephen is speaking They no longer made, they learned that lesson in Babylon, okay? They no longer made statue-type idols out of bronze and gold and silver that they shaped into images of animals and and people and strange-looking creatures. Uh, They had gotten over that. Um, But nonetheless, just like their ancestors, their hearts, especially the spiritual leaders, the Jews, their hearts were still focused back on Egypt. They really did love the world too much especially their prominence and their prestige and their preeminence in this world. And they did rejoice in the works of their own hands, as Stephen said about the Israelites in the wilderness in verse 41. The Jews of Stephen's day were rejoicing in the works of their own hands because what they had done, they had melted down the golden truth of Judaism, which was this, belief in God, faith in God and his word. That's what it's always been. Salvation is by faith in God and his promises. His promised word, especially his promise about his coming redeemer, redeemer, the savior, the seed of the woman, the savior, the anointed one, the Christ. But they had taken that golden truth, melted it down, and reworked it into a false triune God that consisted of their obsession with their land, the works of the law, and the temple their temple. Now, although they would never in a million years acknowledge it, the Jews of Stephen's day treated the word of God, the law, the scripture, with contempt, with great disrespect, just like the Israelites in the wilderness were doing at the foot of Mount Sinai. They, too, were showing great disrespect for the law. Now, they would not say that, and their rabbinical schools and their synagogues were very careful very cautious to read the word, to study the word. Of course, I'm talking about the Old Testament. And, and to memorize the word and to pass it down you know, to their next generation. They were very careful to give great lip service to the scripture. But the fact was that centuries of rabbinical traditions added to the law had taken precedence over actual scripture truth. The letter of the law had become more important to them than the spirit of the law. Doing to them was more important than being. It was all about the hands, what the hands could do, and they neglected the heart, exactly. And um, 
Salvation had actually become more about surgery than faith. <laughs> Circumcision. The simplicity of genuine faith was hidden under thick layers. This is how it was in the church I grew up. And this is how it is in many, many churches. It's like the truth, the simple gospel message is hidden down under all kinds of other stuff. Like, what must I do to be saved? How, oh, you got to do this and you got to do that. And you got to join the church. And you got to, I mean, just, and, you, and you're never really told. I never was. I had perfect attendance for many, many, many years. I was never told how to be born again. It's hidden. And that's what had happened with uh, Judaism. It was hidden. The truth, the simplicity of genuine faith was hidden under the traditions of the elders. It was hidden under the do's and the don'ts of the Pharisees. It was hidden under the materialistic secularism of the, of the Sadducees and all of those reinterpretations of the rabbis. Remember, this was the continual condemnation of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry against Israel's religious rulers. He was always warning the people, don't be like them. They say one thing and do another. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Don't listen to them. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Well, Stephen was now moved to make his final defense, and it had to do, they'd accused him of four things, Blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and now the temple. He's going to get to the temple. It's the least important of the four because it's just a building, all right? But he's moving now to defend himself about the, blas the charge of blaspheming the house of worship. The specific charge that his accusers had made against him was that they heard Stephen say, this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. That's in Acts 6.14. Remember that? And when they said this, Jesus of Nazareth, that was being derogatory. You know, speaking of him dis with, like, despicable. This Jesus of Nazareth of all places. He said he would destroy the temple. Now, the same charge, remember, had made, been made against the Lord Jesus himself. When he had stood trial before Caiaphas and this very same council, one false witness against Jesus had reported, and this was in Matthew 26, 61, that Jesus had said, quote, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That's what one false witness said. <clears throat> Another false witness had claimed that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That's in Mark 14, 58. Both witnesses conflicted with what they said, and both witnesses said distortions of what the Lord had really said. Remember when he went into the temple the first time during his earthly public ministry, he went into the temple, and what did he do? First time, cleansed it. He cleansed it of all the corruption that was going on in Annas' bazaar with the money changers and the animal sellers and making a profit, etc. And then after he cleansed it, they were furious. Who gives you the authority to do this? And he had predicted two very important events with one small statement. Number one, he predicted his death by their hands when he said, destroy this temple. He was talking about his own body. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. John explains to us, no, he was talking about his body. And to call his body a temple, the temple of God, means that his body housed God, and that's definitely a claim to deity, isn't it? <clears throat> All right, so he, he predicted his death by their hands, destroy this temple. And the second thing he predicted was his own resurrection power, because he said then, and in three days I will raise it up. He never said that he could or he would destroy the physical temple, Herod's temple. He never said that he could or he would destroy it. Although, truth be known, he could <laughs> and he would. He would destroy it using the Romans in 70 AD. But he didn't say that, nor did he mention anything about a temple made with hands and another temple made without hands. Although, Truth be known, the physical perishable temple, Herod's temple, that was made with hands, would be replaced 
with the transcendent spiritual temple not made with hands. And that would be the church. So, you know, what they accused him of really was true, but he didn't say those things. Furthermore, he never said anything about rebuilding the temple. What had he said? He would raise it up, and he would raise the same temple back up. Not a different temple. You know, like they said, one made with hands, one made with He said, I'll raise it up, the same temple. That's proof again for the bodily resurrection. It was his body that he raised from the dead, the same body. Um, <clears throat> and finally, he had not even been speaking at all about the temple building. He was speaking about himself. And he was, at that time, the true dwelling place of the living God. Now, no doubt, when Stephen was debating with the Greek-speaking Jews in the various Hellenistic synagogues there in Jerusalem, remember, he had irresistible wisdom. Nobody could ever beat him in a debate. But as he was speaking to them, he would go in there over and over again. I am sure that he talked often about Jesus' bodily resurrection, because that's the whole crux of the gospel. And he would have quoted the Lord's prediction, his actual prediction, about you know, the Jews destroying his temple and him raising it back in three days. He also very likely may have mentioned to these Greek-speaking Jews about the Lord's prediction that the actual temple, Herod's temple, would be destroyed. Back in Matthew 24, 2, he had told his men that it would be destroyed, that not one stone would remain upon another. And such a prediction about the coming destruction of their magnificent temple, I mean, it was just super colossus and beautiful and everything. That was just a horrible thought for any Jew to consider. Even when the disciples heard it, they had been awing the temple, saying, oh, wow, you know, it's just so fantastic and that's when Jesus said well it's going to be destroyed not one stone and they were like horrified all that was just horrific for the Jews to to consider even though it was built by a very evil man Herod the Great he was a murderer he had he had not only murdered one of his wives but he had murdered many of his sons he was an evil man he was not even Jewish he didn't care about the Jewish people, and he had no faith in God himself. He was just wicked. He was the one who built the temple. Um, and it was magnificent. It was built of white marble, and it was covered with heavy plates of gold. It was the length of four football fields and the width of two football fields. It was definitely the pride and the joy of the Jewish people. It had actually become their golden calf, their idol. It took a total of 84 years to finish the temple complex, you know, all the various buildings and courtyards. 84 years. The Jews did not, they wanted, they, they accepted the idea of Herod building it, but they made a stipulation. It could only be built by priests. And I guess they weren't too, you know, they had to go to construction school first, apparently, to learn how to build. <laughs> and it took them 84 years. But they would only let priests build it. So they had to learn all about building. I hadn't known that. I read that this week. It was interesting. But it took 84 years to finish. And you know what year it was finally finished? 64 A.D. Now, it was begun B.C., and it wasn't finished until 64 A.D. Now, here's a little mathematical question. What year was it destroyed? 70. Okay, so how many years did it stand in its completed form? You got it. Six. What is six in the Bible? What number is it? Man's number is six. So whose temple was this? This was man's temple. Herod the Great was the same man, evil, wicked man, who had tried to kill the true temple of God when he was just a child. And he built this temple of his own will. It was his own idea and his own will. And he really built it for the perpetuation of his own name. And in that he succeeded, didn't he? Because what do we still call it? 
Herod's temple. He destroyed, basically we could say, Zerubbabel's temple in order to build his temple. Now Zerubbabel's temple was on the same spot that Herod's temple was built on. Um, Zerubbabel's temple was the temple built after the Jews returned from their 70 years in captivity in Babylon. They came back to the land. Solomon's temple was flat and was destroyed, and they rebuilt the temple right there where Solomon's temple had been, and it was called Zerubbabel's temple because Zerubbabel was the governor of Judea at that time. And um, Herod comes along, and basically he renovates Zerubbabel's temple, but I imagine to do it, he pretty much destroyed it. Um, <clears throat> but the Jews were very pleased with that idea because especially the proud Jewish leaders, they had not been too excited about Zerubbabel's temple. It was not very impressive to look at. It was not very expensive looking. It was not very ornate. Actually, it was pretty simple because the, the 40,000 some Jews who returned from Babylon, that wasn't many, and they didn't have a lot of money, and it just was kind of a disappointment for those who had remembered Solomon's temple. But it, so it had nothing like the beauty of the first temple, Sol, Solomon's temple. So, so they, the Jews were all too happy to receive Herod's replacement of it. Now, I want to ask you another question. If God had not allowed David, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, if God had not allowed David to build the first temple because of what? Blood, bloody hands. Do you think he approved of Herod building this temple, Herod's temple? No, I don't think so. Here's, here's what I do know. I know that God himself gave instructions to Moses for the original tabernacle in the wilderness. And I do know he gave his permission for Solomon's temple to be built. He told David, you can't build it, but your son can. And he gave permission for Solomon to build the first temple. He gave command, actual command, to the returning exiles from Babylon to build Zerubbabel's temple. But search the scripture, and there's no command and no permission from God to Herod or to anyone else to build a temple bigger and supposedly better than Zerubbabel's temple. No permission, no instructions about building Herod's temple. Although far less spectacular than Solomon's temple had been, or Herod's temple was, you see, Zerubbabel's temple, after the Bab Babylonian captivity, Zerubbabel's kind of, you know, simple temple, had pleased God. Why? Why did Zerubbabel's temple please God? It wasn't highly esteemed by those who looked on its outside, just like his son was not that highly esteemed by those who looked at his outside. He just looked like a normal Jewish man, right? Nothing special about him. Nothing special about Zerubbabel's temple. But you know why it pleased God? Because those who built it, built it out of love for him. They truly loved the Lord, and that's why they built. You see, God does not look at the outward appearance, does he? He doesn't really care. Probably some of the godliest churches in this world are little huts or maybe people meeting out in the snow, like that picture in our church foyer. They didn't even have a building. They're just huddled there in the snow in Russia, worshiping the Lord. It's not about the building, is it? And how do we think of that in terms of our own bodies being the temple of God? We are now the temple of God if the Holy Spirit indwells you. Are you more concerned about the outside than the inside? we got to take care of these temples. Yeah, we should do all we can to maintain them because they are a temple of God. Don't desecrate them. You know, don't do anything impure to them. And don't destroy them. Suicide is destroying God's temple. Um, but yet, he's not concerned. You know, I was thinking the other day about all the people in the world that I love the most, um, and, and respect the most, like characters in the Bible, like Stephen. I don't have a clue what he looked like. I don't know what Jesus really looked like. I know when I see him, I'll know who he is. But there's no physical description given of these people because that's not what's important. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And that's, you know, he loved Zerubbabel's temple because people made it from their hearts that really loved him. So was God pleased with Herod's temple? What do you think? No, 
I don't think he really was pleased with it, but he was pleased with those who knew him and loved him, who used the temple, who went into the temple to worship him, like Simeon and Anna and the parents of John the Baptist and Mary and Joseph when they went to the temple to um, circumcise Jesus. And Jesus used the temple too, didn't he? To teach and heal people in and, and the apostles used it in Solomon's porch. You know, he may not, God may not have been um, pleased with the fact that Herod built it and that he you know, poured so much money into it. He may not be pleased with some of these huge, expensive cathedrals in this world, but yet that doesn't mean <clears throat> that he doesn't honor and isn't pleased with the people who go into them to truly worship him. So do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it wasn't that important to him anyway because it's just a structure. It's just a building. And he was sending forth a new temple to replace all the previous ones. And that next temple was going to be fashioned in the likeness of a man. Jesus' name was Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. His body housed God. His flesh was actually a veil that prevented man from seeing the, the glory of God inside. He only let that glory show out one time for three, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he was far greater than any physical temple building. Now, the Jews who accused Stephen of blaspheming the temple had actually been the ones who dishonored the temple, weren't they? Just like their ancestors Oh, my goodness, they certainly dishonored the temple over and over again in their history. Solomon's temple, I went through a study of that this week, and do you know how many times it was plundered? Solomon's temple was plundered by um, an Egyptian pharaoh. It was plundered by King Asa, who took from the temple some of its treasures in order to pay a pagan king to help him in a battle. It was um, under the reign of Athaliah. She was the most wicked queen ever. She even killed her grandchildren. Oh, she was so bad. Bad, bad lady. A witch. <laughs> but she desecrated Solomon's temple. Under the king, uh, king Ahaziah, the temple was plundered of all its gold and silver. Under King Ahaz, it was sacrilegiously robbed um, in order to secure aid from the king of Assyria to help him in a battle. And then even good King Hezekiah. Even a good king had robbed all the silver and gold from the temple in order to pay tribute to Sennacherib of Assyria. And King Manasseh, he put idolatrous things into the temple. Uh, the worship of horses and the sun god and all kinds of, I mean, on and on. And every time they had a good king that came along and made some uh, reforms and uh, restored all the temple vessels and the gold and the silver, that would only last until that reformer died and then the people would would be right back to their evil, desecrating the temple. So no wonder God finally had enough, you know, and took them off into captivity and let that temple be burned to the ground by King Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> but, um, they, and they continued to dishonor it because by the time Jesus came along, it's Herod's temple now, but what did he call it? A den of thieves. They had turned it into a den of thieves and a house of merchandise. So they're really the ones, not Stephen and the Christians. They had been the ones who all their history had dishonored the temple and were still doing so. Twice the Lord went in in order to cleanse it of its corruption. But um, um, that didn't do any good because they just started, they would corrupt it again as soon as he left. The only time the Shekinah presence of God was ever in Herod's temple. You know, the Shekinah presence over the Ark of the Covenant, over the mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, was not in Herod's temple. You know that, right? There wasn't even an Ark of the Covenant in that temple. Um, all they had was a stone, a big stone slab. So the only time the Shekinah presence of God was in the temple was when Jesus walked into its courts. And he was not from the Levitical priesthood lineage. And so he wasn't even allowed into the inner court, was he? 
And remember when he finally left, for the last time he left the temple, he said, your house, he didn't say God's house, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. Why? Because he had just left. In his humanity, you know, Jesus demonstrated to us. He demonstrated the way it has always been, the truth of what has always been, which is that those who know God, who genuinely know God, can worship him and meet with him anywhere at any time. That's how it's always been from the days of Adam, walking in the cool of the garden, right? Jesus could just as easily, in his humanity, he could just as easily talk to his father up in Galilee as he could in Jerusalem of Judea. He could talk to his father on the mountaintops, in the valleys, on the stormy seas, and even on a cross when he was dying. And that's the truth of the matter, right? You can talk. You don't have to be in a structure, a building like this. You can be out. Sometimes I go out to my little pond behind the house, and that's, I just talk to the Lord, and I love it out there. I just, you can talk to him anywhere. Now, I wonder if Stephen, during any of his debates with those Greek-speaking Jews of the synagogues, had spoken of a time. Do you remember this? I always get a laugh on my, a smile on my face when I think of the ubiquitous Pharisees. That means they just popped up everywhere. They were everywhere. Well, Jesus and his disciples on a Sabbath were in a cornfield, and his disciples were hungry. And so the Lord did not prevent them from plucking some ears of corn and eating them. And all of a sudden, bingo, there's the Pharisees. Now, what in the world are they doing out there in the cornfield with Jesus and his disciples? I don't know. But they say, aha, we caught you. You, you, you know, you let your disciples do a work, because they considered that a work, to pluck the corn off the stalk and eat it. And you remember what he said to them? He said to them, I say unto you that in this place, now where are they? They're in a cornfield. He said, I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. <gasps> and then he didn't stop there. He went on to say, and the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. They were horrified because son of man is a messianic title. And then he said, and I'm the Lord of Saturday anyway. And then he proved it because he went into their local synagogue and he healed a man with a withered hand. That proved he was everything he had just said. Yes, he was greater than the temple to be able to do that. He was Lord of the Sabbath because he healed a man on the Sabbath. You know, it's not against the law, the Sabbath law, to do a work of mercy on Saturday or to pluck, you know, to eat. Those were man-made Sabbath laws, right? And he also proved he was the son of man, the Messiah. And what was their reaction? They wanted to kill him. Of course, that's always their reaction. They wanted to kill him. Um, <clears throat> well, apparently Stephen spoke a lot about the one who was greater than the temple. And uh, he must have spoken a lot about, you know, that they destroyed his temple and that he predicted the destruction of the temple because remember the, the accusation against him was that he didn't cease to speak blasphemous words about this holy place. That was in Acts 6.13. So apparently he talked a lot about Jesus and his temple. Now in the history of things, it was after God had delivered Israel from her bondage in Egypt, and after he had also then given her the law to live by, that he, in gracious love, willingly condescended to dwell in the midst of her. Not just lead her around, you know, by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, but to actually dwell in the midst of her. And I got to thinking about how that is so true with you and I. The same picture again. Doesn't he first deliver us from our bondage in this world, our bondage to sin and death? And then doesn't he write his law on our hearts? Not our hearts of stone, our hearts that have been turned into hearts of flesh. He writes his law on our hearts. And then his spirit indwells us. That's the same picture that he did in the wilderness, but he didn't dwell in them. He dwelt with them. He said to Moses in Exodus 25, he said, speak unto the children of Israel and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. 
And then he proceeded to give Moses 46 chapters of information regarding every little detail about the sanctuary they were to build, the tabernacle. There are 13 chapters in Exodus about the tabernacle. There are 13 chapters in the book of Numbers about the tabernacle. There are 18 chapters in Leviticus, and there are two chapters in Deuteronomy having to do with the tabernacle. And when you're reading through your Bible, you get to those chapters and you kind of go, oh, well, this is pretty boring, and you kind of flip through them really quickly. You know, that's a total of 46 chapters on a tent, <laughs> and everything to do with that tent, and you know, make and put into it. The tabernacle was given to Israel by the Lord Jesus, we could say, in the days of her kindergarten lessons, when pictures were the first step in learning truths that would be progressively revealed throughout Scripture. You know, Scripture is a progressive revelation. But Israel is, was still back in her kindergarten days. Now, I have my degree in early childhood development. I was certified to teach from uh, K-4 up through 8th grade and actually taught 2nd grade. Now, you use a lot of visual aids with small children, don't you? Yes, because that's how they learn, flannel boards and picture Bibles and all that kind of stuff. So Israel was in her kindergarten stage. The wilderness tabernacle, as was true also with the temples, was never intended to be more than a temporary pictorial phase in the spiritual education of Israel. It's not really until you get all the way into the New Testament book of Hebrews. Who was the book of Hebrews written to? Duh. Hebrews, Jews. <laughs> it's not until you get into the four chapters in the New Testament book of Hebrews that God finally gives the mature spiritual explanation for the tabernacle and everything that it pictured. Now, if there are 46, here's another math question, 46 chapters in the Old Testament on the tabernacle, and there are four chapters in the New Testament on the tabernacle, that is a total of how many chapters in our Bible? 50. 46 and 4 is 50. 50 chapters in Scripture on the tabernacle. Well, what does that tell us? Obviously, it tells us that it is important to God, isn't it? when especially you compare it with only two chapters on creation. Don't you wish he gave us more chapters on creation? But all we have is Genesis 1 and 2. So where is God's emphasis? I'll tell you where. Not so much on creation as on redemption, because the whole tabernacle is about redemption. Just like when we studied the life of Christ. Remember how many chapters were on just that last week, his Passion Week? Compared to the first 33 years of his life, it was amazing. The emphasis is on the fact, I mean, the whole reason he created everything is be, and man is because he wanted to redeem a people who would be in eternity with him, fellowshipping with him, and glorifying him forever. That was the purpose for all of creation. And so, um, and we know, we know that there obviously has to be something profitable for us because all scripture is given by divine inspiration is profitable for what? For doctrine? for uh, reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So to give us this many chapters, there's obviously some doctrinal importance for us in it. He had given a tangible picture through the tabernacle of his overall redemptive program, which would be fulfilled in his promised Savior, his Son. Through the sacrificial system of the tabernacle, the people were taught their great need as sinners before a holy God for an innocent blood sacrifice to atone for their sin. They learned of their need for a high priest 
who could bring that blood sacrifice before God in their place. And every one of the millions and millions of sacrifices that had been offered up, and every one of the high priests over the succeeding years who had gone in their place into the Holy of Holies, all of that, the sacrifices and the high priests, anticipated the offering of the sinless body of Christ and his shed blood as the sacrificial Passover lamb and as our great high priest. Each succeeding high priest, you know, the high priest came from Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, and they were to hold that position for a lifetime. They didn't get a new one until that guy died. That's how it was supposed to be. But each succeeding high priest only entered into the Holy of Holies how many days a year? One day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he entered in with fear and trepidation and only after offering a sacrifice for himself to cover his own sins with blood. And then he entered into the Holy of Holies with the blood to cover the people. And, you know, it was fear and trepidation because they didn't know if God would accept their, their sacrifice for their sins that year. And um, he could drop dead in there. So what did they do? They tied a rope around his leg. In case he did drop dead, they could drag him out because nobody else was going to go in there and drop dead too. You know, they were <laughs> I never heard of any high priest dropping dead, so I guess God in his grace you know, always accepted their sacrifice. <clears throat> but um, that was the work of the high priest. And then the work of the Levitical priest, the regular priests. I would have hated to be a Levitical priest, wouldn't you? Their job was slaughtering all those animals, slitting their throats and draining the blood. and uh, Blood, blood, gore, talk about being a butcher all day long. And their job was never, ever done. Um, it never ended, ended because, and that was pictured in the tabernacle by the absence of a particular piece of furniture. What was not to be made and put into the tabernacle? What? I haven't heard it yet. Somebody come on. We had one lady yesterday got it right. What was not in the tabernacle because the priest's work was never finished? Yes, I heard it. Yes, a chair. There was not a chair in the tabernacle because, and that was picturing that their work was never finished. The blood of the sacrificial animals, you see, could only temporarily cover the sins of the people. It could not permanently cleanse. And we talked a lot about that when we discussed the Lord's crucifixion. But Christ, here's what it says in Hebrews 10. This is the mature explanation. But Christ offered himself for the sins of the entire world once. And then what did he do? And it says, and he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, them that are set apart for him. He was not only the priest offering the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice being offered. Now the definition of tabernacle means temporary dwelling place. Its purpose was temporary. It was to point to something better to come. So that means it merely stands to reason that it would go away. When whatever it prefigured, whatever it was a picture of, came, then it would go away. After it was fulfilled, it would disappear. Now, being a man of incredible wisdom, which Stephen was, being a man who, who understood truths that his contemporary Christians had not yet grasped, he was far ahead of his time and his knowledge. But he believed, he fully believed God's words about the coming destruction of Herod's temple. He saw that. He, he didn't have any trouble with that. He understood that even from the time when God gave Moses all those 46 chapters of instructions regarding the tabernacle, that it had all been for the purpose of a temporary picture of something else that was far better and permanent. Stephen did not write the book of Hebrews. We know that because he was dead when Hebrews was finally written. We don't know with a surety who did write the book of Hebrews. That's why when you hear preachers, they usually say the author of the book of Hebrews, speaking of the human author. We know the God divine author. But if Stephen had lived, 
he would be one of those that we would be considering as a possible author of Hebrews. If he had lived, I would say, I bet it was Stephen. <laughs> I'm le- I lean toward Paul being the author, but you know we can't be dogmatic about who wrote Hebrews. But he certainly, Stephen, did understand the contents of the book of Hebrews, which can be summarized in Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, which says this, But Christ, being come, an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, Herod's temple, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Stephen understood that. The renting of the temple veil which occurred exactly at the time of Christ's death. I think it happened just as he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. We talked about that, too, when we studied the crucifixion. But, you know, it rent from top to bottom. It was four inches thick. That was obviously a miracle of God, a deliberate work of God to announce that there was to be a change in the form of worship. It would henceforth be on a higher level than just the physical and the visual, such as animals being sacrificed and altars and uh, curtain dividers. Worship, as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, would be in spirit and in truth. And a building is not necessary for true worship or true spiritual faith, is it? I mean, that's very obvious to most of us in this room, but not so with the Jews back then. Now, God never asks his people to give up something, such as a temple, without replacing it with something far better. Get that? He never asks us to give up something without giving us something far better. And think of that in terms of your own temple, you know? One day we're going to be asked to give up these temples that we're temporarily living in. Some of them are getting pretty worn out like the, t- the tabernacle, you know, worn out tents. <laughs> but he's promised to give us something far better. We're going to have a glorified temple to live in forever. Remember Paul said he was, between a, a, he was in a strait between two because he wanted to stay with the Christians and help them grow spiritually, but he knew he'd rather be with Christ because it was what? Far better. And so those who spurn, those who spurn God's offer to give up in order to gain, they're always the losers. If you're not willing to give up something in order to gain, you're going to be the loser. However, prejudices and traditions and habits are very strong bonds to break, especially when it comes to religion. Do we not see that? Oh, we certainly do. God had set aside Judaism. Now, Judaism was a God-given religion, the only true God-given religion. But he set it aside with his son's death and the rent veil. But the Jews simply would not let go. They would not let go of Judaism. So it lingered. And even when the Lord Lord gave them like another 30-something years, and they still kept clinging to the temple and the sacrifices and that whole system that was over with. And so even when he intervened and he removed that temple in 70 AD, Judaism still lingers to this day, doesn't it? It still lingers to this day. Um... The whole purpose for the Judaistic religious system was for it to be God's witness to the world of his promised Redeemer. And yet when that Redeemer finally came, he was thrust from them by false shepherds who had confiscated true Judaism, turning it from a religion of faith to a religion of works. And now, to this day, Judaism is a very sad religion, very sad, because it's now a religion of utter spiritual famine. It's like Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. They've come back, you know, to the land, and and they they look like, you know, they've got their bone, their their skeleton, and the, the skeleton even has flesh on it, 
but there's no life. They're just like scarecrow skeletons. There's no life within them. There won't be life until the Lord returns and they believe in him and he breathes life into them. You see, there can be no life in Judaism without faith in the one who fulfilled all that she was created to picture. Well, the primary obstacle for the Jews back then and yet today, the primary obstacle in coming to faith in Jesus, besides their pride in admitting that they had been wrong in rejecting their true Messiah, their primary obstacle is their failure to understand that the things connected with the ceremonial law, such as the tabernacle or the temple or all the sacrifices and the whole priesthood, were prophetically typical pictures. They were, they were prophetic in their significance and therefore... They were only temporary. You see, when a building is complete, the scaffolding is removed, right? They take away the scaffolding. But the Jews did not want to take down the scaffolding. Why? Well, because they were so proud of how intricate they had made it. <laughs> they refused to let go of their sacred calf, the temple. So let's now get into our lesson and consider what Stephen had to say about the third era of Israel's history. He has talked about her first era, the patriarchal era. He has talked about the Mosaic law era. And now he's going to talk very briefly about the temple era. So let's look at verses 44 to 50. When I read these in the King James, they sound very confusing. So I'll just explain a little bit. And this part really doesn't take me very long. So don't panic. I know you're panicking, Terry Doby. All right. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. You see how confusing that means? All it means is that God spoke to Moses from Mount Sinai and showed him the true tabernacle in heaven and said, build it after this pattern. That's what he says there. Verse 45, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus. Now, Stephen might have said Jesus because... He's talking about Joshua, but he's Greek-speaking, and in Greek, Joshua is Jesus, okay? But he's really talking about Joshua, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. That means that they finally brought the tabernacle into the promised land when Joseph entered into the promised land after God had driven out the Gentiles before them. And the tabernacle stayed in the promised land until the days of David. That's what that means. Now David found favor before God and desired to find a ta tabernacle for the God of Jacob. David wanted to build God a permanent dwelling place. Verse 47, but Solomon built him an house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Now he's going to quote from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? All right, the first thing that Stephen stressed in this section regarding his de defense in relation to the temple is that it wasn't the temple that God instructed Moses to build. What was it? What, what are there 40, 50 chapters in the Bible about? The temple? No, the tabernacle was what God instructed Moses to build. Not the temple. The tabernacle, as we've said, is really a big tent. Have you ever camped out in a tent? This was a huge, you could, you know, you could have taken your whole church in this tent. This was a big tent. It was purposely designed, however, to show that it was temporary and that it was movable. You can move tents, right? So you can worship here, you can worship there. Stephen also stressed that the tabernacle was a witness. He called it the tabernacle of witness. He referred to it as that in verse 44. So it was to serve as a temporary and a movable witness. Now, if you're a witness, you're a witness of something. So what was the tabernacle a witness of? Well, Hebrews gives us the answer. It was a figure, this is Hebrews 8, 2. It was a figure of good things to come of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not men. You pitch a tent. Well, this tent, the true tent, the Lord himself pitched. Now, every color to be used in the tabernacle, every measurement of the tabernacle, every material, every 
every piece of furnishing, every uh, utensil that was to be used, but was given by God in precise detail. That's why it's so boring to read through all that stuff. But why did he give it in such precise detail? Well, because in one way or another, everything, colors, measurements, the whole nine yards, <laughs> measurement, uh, everything pictured Christ. The tabernacle was a witness. It was a figure of the day when Christ would tabernacle with men. What does it say in John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's the word dwelt? Tabernacled. He tabernacled with men on earth and opened the way for God to bring a redeemed people boldly into his holy presence, not with fear and trepidation, but boldly into his presence to tabernacle with him forever. Remember what he promised? He says, I go away to prepare for you a, a what? A dwelling place. A so you can tabernacle with my father in my father's house. God came to earth to tabernacle with man so man could one day tabernacle with God forever. Now something else that Stephen stressed was that the tabernacle was in the wilderness. Don't you love it? Verse 44. Just like Moses, the tabernacle was not a native of Israel, much less Jerusalem. Just as Israel as a people had originated with a man from outside the land, Abraham from Mesopotamia, so did their revered temple originate outside the land. Where did it originate? In the wilderness of Midian. Stephen was again attacking the Jews' proud obsession with their land and their law and their temple in Jerusalem. Now, even when Israel finally, after a 40-year disbelief delay, when Israel finally crossed the Jordan under the leadership of Joshua and took the tabernacle with her into the promised land, do you know, even once it was in the promised land, it had no permanent dwelling place for 360 years? You know, they moved it around with them in the wilderness for 40 years. When they finally entered into the promised land, they also moved it around to several different locations. Actually, it wasn't until the days of David, King David, that he decided to keep the tabernacle stationary in Jerusalem. He brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem and, and put it there. But then he had a problem because he could see it from his palatial palace. His, uh, that's a double. His, his beautiful palace. And he, could, he looked over at the tabernacle, and you know, after 400 years, a tent can get pretty worn down, like some of our tents, you know. <laughs> and David kept looking, you know, he looked out, he didn't look out the window where he saw a beautiful Bathsheba, he looked out the other window and he saw this old lady, this tent, you know, getting pretty baggy, and he said, wow, that's not right, that God lives in a tent that's falling apart, and I live in this wonderful palace. And he got burdened about that. And so he determined, he decided that he would build God a permanent building. And so he got the prophet Nathan, and, and he told him his idea. And you know what Nathan said? Go for it. That's a great idea. And Nathan said, go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Uh-oh, Nathan. You forgot to check with God on that. So the Lord had to check in with Nathan. He said, not so fast, Nathan. Might have been a good idea, but he can't build that house. He's got bloody hands. He purposely put uh, Uriah, was it Uriah, yeah. on the front line so he could, he could be killed, Bathsheba's husband. Um, but God, through Nathan, he told David that he didn't need a house of cedar. He, God told David, he said, don't you remember all the times of wonderful, sweet fellowship that you and I enjoyed when you were a shepherd? And you, write, you wrote almost a whole book of, of, of songs to my glory out there. Didn't we enjoy wonderful fellowship with one another? How about when, when I protected you from your enemies, when you were hiding in caves? Wasn't I there with you in the caves too, David? Now why all of a sudden do I need a house to be able to fellowship with you and you fellowship with me and other people that love me? You know, I don't need a house. I'm in no hurry for a house. That's what God essentially told, told David. Um, Really, the fact is that it wasn't until Israel went into the wilderness with Moses that there was any structural place of worship at all. Think all the way back to Adam. Was there any structural place of worship for Adam, for Noah, for Enoch, for, for um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the patriarchs and their ancestors? Where did they worship God? Just 
anywhere, right? Out in the open, they could put a couple stones on top of each other and make an altar. And that's, they just, they never had a structure. The glory of God's holiness was not diminished, nor was the purity of his people's worship lessened in any way because of the lack of a structure. The whole reason that the tabernacle had been designed to be movable and to be temporary was to demonstrate that worship is not about a place. It's about a person. Now, there are people in this world who think they actually have to make pilgrimages to places in order to really, you know, get gold badges with God, to go to Medina. Or, um, and if you go to Medina and you make a pilgrimage, you get to change your headscarf from a gray checkered headscarf to a red checkered headscarf. So you look like you're more important than everybody else. There are people who think a place is important, but it's not about a place. It's about a person. It's not about a structure. It's about a savior, right? Genuine worship is about the heart and faith and truth and obedience to the one who is the object of our worship. However, David's thoughts about a temple came from a heart that truly loved God, right? Just like Zerubbabel's temple. He really did love the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart, even though his hands had gotten kind of bloody. Everybody messes up, don't they? But he found favor with God, Stephen says in verse 46. His motives were noble. Um, so Nathan went on to tell David that God, even though God would not permit him, that was bad news for David to hear, that God would not permit him to build the temple. That be, that's the bad news. But then he went on to give the good news, and he said, but your son will build me a temple. And you know, the rest of David's life, he gathered all the materials for the temple. But Solomon was the one who was privileged by God to actually build the temple. But, David, but God went on to even give better news. He said, you know, your son will be able to build the temple. And to me, that would be better news. I don't care about me. If my son could do it, that would be great. That'd be even better, wouldn't it? But he said, um, and I will build you a house that will endure forever. In what is known as the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, he said, David, you can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house that will endure throughout all of eternity because from your greater son will come the Messiah. That had to really be good news, right? David learned that from his seed would come the Messiah. Well, it wasn't necessary for Stephen to get into details about Solomon's temple because the Israelites he was speaking to, they knew all about it like they knew all the rest of their history. But in verse 48, he referenced Solomon's words. Solomon did go ahead and he built the temple. And when the temple was dedicated, Solomon said this. He said, who is able to build him a house? God. Seeing as the heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a house save only to burn sacrifice before him? That's in 2 Chronicles 2.6 and Stephen kind of just summarizes what Solomon had said. It was a heathen idea that a god could be confined to a building. Right? It's, that's heathen. Because statues and idols, they can be confined to buildings. They, they can't walk. They can't go anywhere. They're not omnipresent. You can put them in a little niche in the wall. But the Jews had come to the sad point in their history where they actually looked more, you know, they almost worshipped the temple more than they did God. Well, they didn't know God, so I guess they did worship. It, it had become their golden calf. Now, even though God did not need a house, he wanted to continue the picture, the symbol of his coming redemption. And he wanted his people to stay connected to one another with him at the center. And so he graciously placed his Shekinah glory cloud over the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of Solomon's temple, just as he had done with the tabernacle. And that glory cloud represented his presence but it in no way confined his presence. Omnipotent, omnipresent God can never be constrained to just one geographical place or one building. I don't care how beautiful or ornate you make it. Um, and then Stephen quoted from Isaiah 66 when he said, uh, this is the Lord speaking, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house shall you 
build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made everything? You know, my hands made the whole world. I don't need a house. So from both Solomon's words at the temple dedication and the Lord's words through Isaiah, Stephen's argument was this, that God is far greater than any temple, no matter how spectacular, no matter how many years it took to build it. The buildings and all the furnishings and all the various sacrifices and courtyard and priesthood, they all just prefigured something better. So it did not dishonor God when the tent of the tabernacle gave way to a structure called the temple. They were merely symbols anyway, weren't they? Um, Neither was it dishonoring God for the physical temple to give way to the spiritual transcendent temple. Today, the physical temple is gone. Do you know something interesting? Do you know that the first temple, which is Solomon's temple, and the second temple, which is really Zerubbabel's temple, the Jews look at Zerubbabel's temple as the second temple. They don't call Herod's temple the third temple. You know what their third temple is? The one that's going to be built when the Messiah comes back. The millennial temple. They call that the third temple. But do you know that the first temple and the second temple, which would be Solomon and then Herod's temple, Herod's temple was built over Zerubbabel's. I know that's confusing. But do you know that both of their temples were destroyed on the very same day of the year? The very same day. And they call that Tish B'Av. And if you go to Israel on Tish B'Av, or if you're with Jewish people on Tish B'Av, do you know that? It's the, a day of great mourning in Israel. Everybody wears black in remembrance of the day both of their temples were destroyed. That day fluctuates because of the cycle, you know, the moon and everything, but um, basically that it's August 9th. Now, if that's your birthday, I'm sorry. <laughs> One girl yesterday was horrified. Oh, that's my birthday. But I think that's interesting. And the Jews say that something else catastrophic is going to happen on Tish B'Av in the future. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that would be the day when the Antichrist places the abomination of desolation on the tribulation temple. I don't know. But they say there's something else. In their history, a lot of really bad things did happen on that particular day. This year, because it fluctuates, I looked it up. This year, it's going to be July 25th. (laughs) Now, if that's your birthday, (laughs) but it does fluctuate. Anyway, did you also know that Herod's temple was destroyed on a Sabbath? Saturday. What do you think the Lord was saying? (laughs) I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There's just so many things in history that we don't hear about, but they're so, so very interesting. Well, I'm sorry I kept you over time. I'm sure I did. Yep, I did. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross of your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for crucifixion day, because that was really the great day of atonement. When your son, as the great high priest, by his own blood, not the the blood of, of goats and calves, but by his own blood, entered once for all into the holy place. His death is what rent the veil of guilt and wrath for sin that had so long separated man from you, Father. His death took away the, the cherubim that you had placed at the gate of Eden, And his death took away that flaming, swirling sword, and it opened the way back to the tree of life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Oh, how we love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.